I'm Debo Dykes, and in this series of podcasts, we will ask critical questions about faith and public life. This month is the 44th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. With the new administration taking office in January, women throughout the United States are extremely concerned about what is at risk regarding their reproductive rights. Since the incoming administration has promised to appoint a conservative, pro-life, anti-abortion person to the Supreme Court, what does that mean? And is Roe v. Wade at risk of being repealed? On the podcast today is a panel of four women asking questions and offering their opinions about the subject, Roe v. Wade. Melissa Weininger, the Anna Smith Fine Senior Lecturer in Jewish Studies at Rice University in Houston, Texas. Claire Villarreal, Program Director for the Dawn Mountain Center for Tibetan Buddhism in Houston. Amy Harris, a public health researcher specializing in community health, a research associate and co-principal investigator for neighborhood centers in Houston. Muffy Maroney, one of Houston's most admired and respected Democratic activists. Muffy is a trial attorney in Houston, Texas. As I understand the court's assumption in Roe versus Wade, you don't have a fully formed human being uh, until birth occurs, live birth. Um, and it's my understanding that in Judaism that is the, the same thinking, that uh, a person is not alive fully until he or she is born. Is that... Yeah, I think so. Again, like I'm, I'm, <clears throat> I'm not a uh, an expert on on Jewish religious law, so I I um, I don't want to make uh, claims that I I have no knowledge of. But I will say that in Judaism there are some competing claims about life. Um, that yes, on the one hand. Um, uh, there's not a sense of a sort of, I don't know what you'd call it, like an ensouled mm-hmm. person prior to birth. Um, and uh, of course, in Judaism also, um, the life of the living, the already living is, uh, extra- is as important as anything else. So um, in Judaism, if a person is a person's life is in danger uh all the claims of jewish law are suspended so for example um on the sabbath if you were to you know normally if you're a sabbath observant you would not use the phone or uh, drive in a car on the sabbath but if you um have a heart attack of course you can pick up the phone and you can go in an ambulance, right? All of the legal <laughs> obligations that compete with the preservation of life are suspended, essentially. It's, there's a name, it's called Pikuach Nefesh. Um, That's so, true in Islam. Like well, Judaism Ramadan. and Islam are basically the same. 
religion. And I talk about this a lot, but yeah. Um, but like during Ramadan, uh, many observant Muslims exactly. fast. Exactly. Right. You're sick. You, you don't. don't fast, of course, right? And and so when we talk about something like abortion, for example, right, if there was ever a question that there was a danger of some sort to the mother's life or health, that would immediately invalidate any other prohibition against really anything. So, um, you know, I think, and I think that's something that that idea of, you know, the person who's already alive, who's carrying the fetus, often gets lost in the shuffle of these conversations frequently, right? It, the focus is redirected, um, right, toward what's inside the womb instead of the person with the womb. Well, the decision is taken away from the, mom, the woman who bears the fetus. Right. It's like... Um, I think Debo and David and I were talking about the invasion of the body snatchers, that old mm-hmm. uh, horror movie <laughs> where uh, uh, aliens come in and they suck the brains out of human beings. And that's what's happened with women. You know, you think 52, 53% of white women voted for Trump in this country? That's astonishing. The body snatchers got them. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant. I'm hesitant to to make that kind of claim because I feel like it's also important to think about um, to not to not deny those women agency either. Right? They made they made that decision. They they chose to, and we, and we can say that they made it on based on false information or whatever it is. But um, I think. It, it's also important to preserve, you know, not to deny those women agency just because we don't agree with her. You're you're decision. giving them more credence than I do, but um, which is unusual because usually I'm super judgmental. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what happened. I must be because of my lack of sleep, <laughs> like feeling generous. <laughs> I was looking up uh, a word that came to me as as you were talking. It's insolment, mm. and I don't find it in this dictionary. I'm not going to get out my unabridged. It's too heavy, but it does have two in soul in here. The the verb, and it means to endow with a soul, and I think that is from a religious point of view also what we're talking about when we talk about life and when does life begin for those who believe whatever soul means that we have them which buddhists don't don't you yeah i'm no curi- we don't. I was cur- really? i'm really yeah. curious like what what is the buddhist perspective on this yeah i've been thinking about this i mean i should confess that you know Reproductive rights is not like one of the things I've really like put a lot of time into, but I have been thinking about different Buddhist perspectives on, I mean, basically the question is what constitutes a person? Hmm. Is a person, you know, so the Buddhist sense of things is instead of a soul, we talk about continuity of mind. There's there's no creator deity in Buddhism. So it's, there's not a sense that there's a person and then a soul gets put in there somehow. The idea is actually more that 
you know, in this lifetime, I have a certain continuity of mind. And then the death of the body doesn't actually stop the mind. So the mind, depending on, you know, which school of Buddhism you're following, um, some schools say that the mind immediately gets connected with the new body um, at the moment of conception of that new body. Uh, in Tibetan Buddhism, we talk about an in-between state of up to 49 days. So after the person dies, they go, kind of go into this like subtle body and there's a state when they don't have a body and they're sort of drawn to, um, like if you're going to be human, you would be attracted to two, per two people having sex. And you'd be drawn into that moment with them. And then when conception happens, that's when you, your, your mind would be associated with that sort of nascent new body. But you're obviously not a person yet. Um, and the other thing is, you know, because we believe in reincarnation and because you could be reborn as an animal or something instead, it's not, it's not the case that a human being is sort of like fundamentally different from an animal in some way. Mm. So I think in some ways, a lot of the, the arguments around, you know, the time of conception, what constitutes a person, they happen very differently in Buddhism. And I mean, I'm not really aware of the ab abortion debate in a, a traditional pre-modern Buddhist culture. So there's not exactly a, you know, a formulated set of responses to that. But the thing is, I mean, in Buddhism, there's also reincarnation. So there's not the sense that if this person there's not a sense that this is the one and only shot that you get, that you're some kind of like unique creation. Mm -hmm. You've been born countless numbers of times. If this body doesn't work out, you're gonna go to a new body. So I think the, the issues are really different for us in Buddhism. And I've been trying to think like, what do I have to contribute to the conversation? And it's, it's a little difficult to know because our assumptions are so different starting out. I, I, but that's, I think that's very useful in a way. I think that idea like, there's not only one shot, right? <laughs> I, I don't know that 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 seems that seems somehow important here. Yeah, I think. Yeah, there's actually um, I'm a little obsessed with contemporary research on reincarnation, and there's one case study that I've read about. Um, I think this was in it's in one of Jim Tucker's books, uh, and he actually wrote about a girl who claimed to remember a previous life in which she was aborted by her would-be mother. Hmm. And she, you know, gets born again. Well, she gets born to a new mother, but then she meets the woman who would have been her mother, and the woman is her swim coach. And she has this, like, really intense relationship with the swim coach until she's kind of able to let go of, like, that was a previous life, this is now. And then she goes on to develop normally. So, <clears throat> I mean, if you take a Buddhist worldview, then, like, still the idea of abortion, there's not an easy, you know, answer to it. Even if you assume that life begins at conception, and some of the contemporary research on reincarnation suggests it actually doesn't. So, hmm. so there's that. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that you say there's no sort of easy answer because I feel like um, sometimes what we want or are looking for, and this is maybe on both sides, certainly when you're talking about um, religious perspectives on on um, abortion and reproductive rights is an answer, right? A lot of times I think people go to religion, religious perspectives, because they want to know the answer, right? For some <laughs> external force, body, um, voice to tell them what 
to do, how to be, how to behave. And so, you know, that has some, I think, sometimes positive consequences, right? It gives us um, ethics, right? A lot for a lot of us uh, that can be the source of our kind of sense of ethics is certainly not the only source, right? Because I'm not someone who believes that there's ethic, no ethics without religion. Um, but I think for some people, right, that's that outside voice gives them some kind of guidance in that realm. But on the other hand, um, you know, it may, sometimes it's better not to have one answer, right? Um, some things are supposed to be hard or fraught or difficult. It's we're human beings and it's life. Uh, this is life, right? Things are messy. Um, sometimes you have to make decisions that are not a hundred percent right one way or another, just because you can't live otherwise, right? Um, and maybe sometimes you do have to make a choice that, um, you know, say, even if you think that life does begin at conception and that you are destroying a soul or a human being, um, that that's necessary for some other good that supersedes it. Like the life of the mother. Yeah. Or, it, or the well-being of the mother. Yeah. Or, I mean, yeah. And I don't, and you know, I'm probably pretty, uh, uh, you know, I'm probably would interpret that as generously as possible too, <laughs> because I'm actually someone who really um, thinks that, in many ways, uh, you know, abortion reproductive rights are a positive good for women, and um, you know, I don't, I don't personally have the feeling that, you know, I know there's a lot of rhetoric around, well, I'm pro-choice but anti-abortion, or uh, you know, we all agree that abortion, we should have less abortions. And, you know, I mean, I think that's great if it works out that way. But um, I, I don't necessarily think that that's the goal or what we should be striving for, right? If we're talking about letting people make their own choices, then you also have to be pro-abortion and not just pro-choice, I think, you know. Pro-access to that. It's, yeah, it's yeah. interesting. During, um, I can't remember the year when the Republican National Convention was here, and lots of demonstrators showed up at the Planned Parenthood Clinic that then was on Fannin. And a lot of us went over to volunteer to help escort clients into the, but uh, within these crowds, and police showed up on horseback and uh, demonstrators on our side showed up, the drum corps with drums, and I mean, it was a melee. Um, and there was one woman who was there every day with the preachers waving her Bible in the front of all of these anti-choice demonstrators, these ministers, so-called. And everybody knew her because she was there every day. About a year later, she shows up at that clinic for an abortion. Mm. And they recognized her, of course, from the demonstrations. And they always give counseling and question uh, thoroughly anybody who is coming in for an abortion. And they, they 
told her that they recognized her and asked her how she could justify that choice of hers. And she said, well, that uh, anti-abortion position applies to everybody else. There's an exception for me. So... um, That just makes her sound mentally ill. I mean, it doesn't really make her sound like a principled human being. Uh Uh I think that also, though, I mean, I'd like to have a little empathy and compassion for her Mm -hmm. because, I mean, there's clearly something really going on. If somebody is protesting that virulently and then shows up at a clinic and says, that doesn't apply to me. You know, and I mean, I empathize. I, I empathize with the idea that you don't want, you know, if you see these embryos as like a potential human mm-hmm. or if you see them as a fully human, as some people do, you know, I can I can see the concern. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, obviously, I come down on the other side of the issue. But, you know, I think just that story speaks to how much pain there is on this issue for both sides. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's never an easy decision. Right. Even under the best, if there are best circumstances. It's yeah. always hard. Nobody is really pro-abortion, I don't think. I might Listen, be pro-abortion. <laughs> I mean, you would, you would like, I would think, for there never to be a pregnancy, an unintended pregnancy that would arise that would cause you to have to make that decision. Right. I, I guess so. But I mean, that just seems like an, in, I, I mean, just an, an absolutely unrealizable goal, right? I think if we're being pragmatic, like no amount of access to birth control is ever going to make that happen uh, because we're, again, like we're just human beings. People miss pills or forget to use birth control or it fails or, you know, all of these things. I mean... It's not 100%, I, but it's... I guess when I say I'm pro-abortion, what I mean is that also I think sometimes what happens is in this rhetoric around, even pro-choice rhetoric around abortion, um, where the choice is valorized and the abortion itself is stigmatized, mm-hmm. that it, it, it causes a kind of stigma around abortion, even for people who are in support of it that make it difficult for women to make that choice. Mm -hmm. So I guess my feeling about it is, is that I would love to see it recast as something that we embrace, something that is seen as a positive good and that has rather than stigma attached to it, like we'd like to see less of this, um, some kind of morally neutral value attached to it at the very least, if not positive. Um, so that, right, pe- that pe- I mean, part of the reason it's a hard decision is because of the stigmatization of abortion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ma- maybe in a morally neutral um, world, right, it, it's not as difficult a decision because it's not stigmatized and there's not a sense that you might be doing something wrong, right? Or that you're making a kind of choice for yourself over and against someone else or a baby or a potential baby. Um, Because of course, women are ashamed all the time about motherhood in all kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. And they're um, um, 
you know, ability to reproduce. So. Now, joining the podcast by phone is our special guest, Sarah Weddington, who, as a young female lawyer, argued the landmark case of Roe v. Wade before the Supreme Court in January 1973. Hello. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Muffy. How you doing? Okay, I'm sitting here reading Roe v. Wade. I'd kind of like to actually maybe just hear a Sarah's summary of what she did and her experience. Sorry, this is Claire, by the way. Um, Hi, Claire. Hi. Claire the Buddhist. Yeah. (laughs) Is that how how you introduce yourself? Is that what your name tag says? Hi. That's not what I call myself. (laughs) (laughs) I hear it sounds like a cartoon character. (laughs) I'm the non-threatening Buddhist. Um, (laughs) I mean, just personally, because I'm not that familiar with the case, I wouldn't mind just getting a summary if you're willing if if that's what makes sense for everybody, or hearing about it from your perspective, yeah, like, what exactly. Was it like to be part of that and to be there. But let me give let me jump in. One thing we talked about was how young you were when this came your way, and how inexperienced you were really as a lawyer, uh, as a recent graduate doing uncontested divorces and. Wills, isn't that right? Yeah. Yeah. And then here comes this client that catapults you into another realm. Um, and I, I don't know much about millennials. I think that's what 26 years old would be, a millennial. I, I don't know whether somebody 26 years old, right, graduating even from Texas law school, would have the ability that you had to deal with this. Is that sort of what you all are looking for? I would just like to hear, yeah. you know, Sarah's account right. of what happened and, and what the aftermath maybe was for you. Okay. Um, looking back on the time when Roe uh, was starting, uh, which was the late 60s, there there were there was a group here in Austin, Texas, mostly graduate students at the university. Uh, the top of the, uh, what would you say, the top of the uh, influencers in that group was a woman named Judy Smith, who unfortunately died last year, and she was a uh, she was majoring in biology, and she and some other women and at least one man, Judy's boyfriend, uh, named Jim Wheelis, uh, first started trying to get information about contraception. And the University of Texas uh, Health Center would not give information or help regarding contraceptives to any student. And they really thought that was wrong. So somebody had gone to Boston and smuggled in a copy of Our Bodies, Ourselves, which was then thought to be scandalous, Uh, and uh, read it, obviously, and set up a counseling center at a little desk uh, above what is now the co-op, right across from the university. And so they began to provide information and names of uh, physicians that would help regarding contraception uh, to people who came and asked for the information. Uh, 
Um, and from that, they realized there were a lot of women saying, but I'm already pregnant. I don't want to go through this. What are my options? And so a group of them, B. Durden, was another one of the main people who put a lot of time and effort into trying to find places that women could go to for abortion. Now, that included both illegal, uh, because there were doctors in Texas who were providing abortion, but doing it illegally, because all abortion was illegal except to save the life of the woman, and nobody knew what that meant. Uh, There was a doctor from the Fort Worth area who was under pending criminal indictment for allegedly having done two illegal abortions. Uh, And he sought to intervene in this lawsuit because he said there were a number of other doctors who were in the same situation. But there were doctors who were performing abortions in Texas um, who had not been arrested, but if, I mean, the theory was if somebody found out what they were doing, they would be arrested. Uh, And then there were some in like Mexico, where I think today uh, abortion is legal only in Mexico City, Uh, but there were a lot of physicians who had proper medical licenses who were performing abortions in Mexico. Now, there again, you had the problem that it was illegal, and so my theory has always been that they were probably paying off certain members of the police force to keep from being arrested, Um, but but they were good, they were competent. And then there was the problem that if you went to Mexico, uh, as the women were here who were advising women, were very concerned that they get to the right doctor because there were other people who were performing abortion who were not a doctor. Uh, And so they were trying to be sure the women stayed out of the hands of those people. And then you had the fact that if you had enough money you could fly to Colorado, where abortion was not totally legal, but in large part legal. You could go to California, and so there were places on American Airlines every Thursday or Friday out of Dallas uh, Airport going to California and coming back on Sunday. And those physicians in California were very competent in doing it in a legal capacity. Then New York became legal, and so women could fly to New York and get very good services. There were a number of places providing access to abortion there. But you had to have a good bit of money to do all that, and you had to know where to go. So they were giving women information. Um, They also began to work with other groups, like there was a group called uh, the Religious uh, Rights for Abortion, which had a lot of very active Methodists, Um, There was one here, Bob Bryan, there was one in Dallas. Uh, There were a number of Methodist uh, uh, people with religious credentials who were willing to counsel a woman for her to decide what she wanted to do and who knew the information this group of women with Jim Wheelis involved uh, were collecting. But the women got to be really worried that they would be arrested for even giving out information. And so there were various times when all kinds of things were happening. For example, B. Durden got so worried about it that if somebody called and asked for the information, B. said, well, give me a phone number and I'll call you back. And so she would go outside to a pay phone uh, 
uh, and haul them back so that it would be less likely to be recorded. And um, then in Dallas at Parkland Hospital, which most people recognize is where John F. Kennedy was taken when he was shot, um, Parkland was a very good hospital. And it had an IOB ward, which means infected obstetrics. So a lot of doctors in Texas had the experience of trying to save women's lives, their fertility, uh, at Parkland, either if they had tried self-abortion and really messed things up, or illegal abortion, or, you know, problems with reproduction. So there, it, there was an escalating group of people, some women's organizations, some religiously affiliated, some medically affiliated, uh, who were beginning to say the law is creating so much difficulty and often traumas for women, uh, and there just needs this needs to be changed. Uh, abortion should be legal. So one day, Judy Smith and a small group talking to me over at the law school. We were just having coffee and talking about the information and making it available and. Judy said, well, Sarah, I think we need to bring a lawsuit and try to make abortion legal that way. We're, it's going to take us forever to get this done through the Texas legislature. Um, and so I, was, I had been researching the law of, you know, how would you bring a lawsuit and all that sort of thing, and I was reporting. And she said, well, Sarah, would you try a case like this? And I said, well, I really think it'd be better for you to get somebody with more experience. Because, as Muffy indicated, I had very limited trial experience. Um, although I was, at the I was at the law school working, so I had access to the various professors of law there and had talked to some of them about different aspects, who would be a proper plaintiff, what were the grounds that should be alleged, etc. Um and so I said, I, I think it'd be better if you got somebody with more experience. And Judy said, well, um, how much would you charge us to do this case? And I said, oh, I'll do it for free. <laughs> I'm a lawyer. And that's how I got the case. Now, I didn't say that in order to get it. But <laughs> clearly, I knew they didn't have any money. <laughs> I didn't foresee the kinds of online solicitations that are now happening. Um, you may have seen, re well, let's go on to what you want to talk about, and I can come <laughs> back to that later. Well, where did this plaintiff come from? How did you uh, first encounter her? Okay, well, I, I felt that I, would, I should get someone else to be co-counsel with me. So I called Linda Coffey, who was a she had been in my class of law school, and she had clerked for a federal judge, and so I felt, and she was then with a law firm. She was doing bankruptcy law, uh, but she had had more legal experience than I had, and so I called her and told her what I was thinking about, asked if she would help me, and she would say, she said, sure. So I was talking to people here in Austin about a proper plaintiff and who would that be, and because they were counseling so many women, did they have someone in mind that might be good to be the plaintiff? And Linda was doing the same thing in Dallas. And one of her friends there was a male attorney who often did cases involving divorce and involving 
uh, adoption. And so a woman had come to him, whose name I will say only because she has made it public. I had never made it public until she did. Her name was Norma McCorvey. And she was a woman who had previously had one child that her mother took away from her on the basis she was unfit to raise a child. And she was pregnant. She did not want to be. And so Henry, Linda's friend, talked to her about these two women who were wanting to do a lawsuit and that she might talk to us about being the plaintiff. And so uh, she talked to Linda, and then Linda called me and told me to come to Dallas. I went to Dallas. Uh, we met uh, Norma McCorvey at a pizza parlor in Dallas and talked about the case. And, of course, her main concern was, well, what would it cost me? What would I have to do? And we explained that we were going to provide the legal services and we would pay the fees involved. Um, and so, really, all she had to do was to sign a one-page legal affidavit saying that she was pregnant, explaining a little bit about herself and saying that she did not want to go through the pregnancy. And of course, we explained that law is a very slow-moving thing at times. And so we couldn't guarantee that we would get the case through to judgment before she gave birth. Uh, but we would do our best to get it going and move it as fast as we could. And so she became the plaintiff. Now, where did the name Jane Will come from? As you would recognize, that was a period when we, the U.S. was involved in the Vietnam War, where if you were talking about a man that was in service, you often called him John, uh, John Doe. And so we just did a takeoff on that, Jane Roe. <laughs> uh, and that's where the name came from. Uh, and who, is, who was Wade? Wade was Henry Wade, who was the district attorney of Dallas. And some people, again, will remember him as the person who was prosecuting the man who allegedly shot John F. Kennedy. Uh, one of the things about Henry Wade um, was that he didn't mean to help us, but he did. Uh, he was because uh, we went before a three-judge federal court in Dallas, where the plaintiff's residence was, and the court basically said, we think the law is unconstitutional, but we refuse to grant an injunction. We had asked that the court tell Henry Wade to quit prosecuting doctors, because that was the main reason doctors would not perform abortion, because they were afraid they'd be prosecuted. So if we could keep them from being subject to prosecution, we thought there would be a number of doctors here in Texas who would be willing to help women. And the, the court said we refuse to grant an injunction because we assume that a law enforcement official will abide by the judgment of a three-judge federal court. The next day, Henry Wade had a press conference and said he didn't care what any federal court said. He would continue <laughs> to prosecute well, there is a direct appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court if there's a situation where a federal court has declared a law unconstitutional, yet it is being continued to be enforced. And Henry Wade had just said, yes, this is going to continue to be enforced. So we filed what we call a protective appeal to the Fifth Circuit, which is normally where you would have to go before you could go to the Supreme Court. But 
because we had all this that Henry Wade had said on record, the press had it, uh, we asked the Fifth Circuit to hold its consideration in abeyance and let us first see if the Supreme Court wouldn't take the case, and they did. So we argued the case first before the U.S. Supreme <laughs> Court, which was great from our point of view, mm-hmm. and then the, the court declined to decide the case and instead said, we're going to set this for another hearing. And you might ask why. Well, the reason was at that point the court only had instead of the nine judges, which is typical, seven judges. And so there was enough dissent within the judges on the bench, or the justices on the bench at that time, that they decided it was better to wait until they had nine justices. So that's what happened. They waited while two more people were appointed and confirmed by the Senate, and then the hearing was set again. So we argued again, and then we started waiting for the decision. Um, The decision was announced January 22nd, 1973. That was two days after Nixon was inaugurated for his second term. So the odd thing is I had run for the legislature in the meantime because I didn't know if we were winning or losing, and I thought, well... If we lose it in the Supreme Court, if I'm in the legislature, at least I can try to change it from there. So I became the first woman ever elected from Austin, Travis County, to be in the Texas legislature. And I was at my office over at the Capitol, and the phone rang, and an assistant answered it, and it was a New York Times reporter. And the reporter said, does Miss Weddington have a comment today about Roe versus Wade? (laughs) <laughs> and my assistant said, should she? It's <laughs> a logical question. <laughs> and so the reporter said it was decided today. And so the assistant said, how was it decided? <laughs> and uh, the response was, she won it seven to two. Wow. And then uh, the Supreme Court, we got a telegram from the Supreme Court saying that you know, I had won it seven to two, and they were going to airmail a copy of the opinion. Well, there are several odd things about this. One, there is no longer a telegram. You cannot send a telegram anymore. I mean, that shows how, how long ago this case was. And then second, you would never make a lot of comments to the press about a case if all you knew was you had won. So I had to call a friend in Washington and say, go over to the Supreme Court, get a copy of the opinion, read it, call me back, tell me what it says, read me the best parts. And so the friend did that. And then after that, I could make comments. But it was such a good feeling to have won and to change the law that applied to women who wanted to make their own decisions. Talk about who your office manager was for a while. I think that's interesting. That was Ann Richards. What? (laughs) Yeah, Ann had uh, helped manage my campaign, and I had never worked in a campaign. I'd I'd been an intern, well, a typist over at the legislature, uh, but I had never run a campaign. So uh, several women who were helping me and all the people who really worked in my campaign were women. 
because a lot of others with more experience were working at that same time in the Sissy Farenthold campaign, or Francis Farenthold campaign. So um, the women working with me thought, well, let's find somebody with some experience. And Anne was a name that came to mind. And so we went and had lunch with Anne and asked her to help us. And I really think she felt she was taking pity on us. <laughs> um, and in a way, she really was. But she, was, she came to help us. And then her daughter, her oldest daughter, Cecile Richards, came to help. And so, you know, Cecile is now head of Planned mm-hmm. Parenthood, but that's where she started her political work. Mm-hmm. That's great. This, this is Melissa. I'm really struck listening to your um, story by just the tremendous amount of confidence and uh I don't know that that it, that it would have taken for somebody in your position who's very young, who had never really tried a case like this before, to march into the Supreme Court and argue this huge, I mean, precedent-setting case. I just, I guess, I wonder what that's what that was like, and. Um, you know, also, if you think there's some kind of example or lesson in it for uh, young women now who I think are going to have to organize and sort of um, raise their voices uh, in, a, in a new way. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with the last part of your statement, because looking ahead, my generation that was so involved in the original now, we, we weren't the ones who started making contraception available. That was a case in 1965 called Griswold versus Connecticut, where Connecticut, it was illegal in Connecticut to use contraception, even if you were married. And so a couple, um, married couple, went to the Planned Parenthood uh, office in New Haven, Connecticut, and the director of that Connecticut was Estelle Griswold, and her doctor was, the doctor who worked with her was Lee Buxton. And so they gave contraceptive, uh, a contraceptive device, as it's called in the case, <laughs> uh, to a married couple, and they were arrested, prosecuted, and convicted of the crime of providing contraception. And that case went to the Supreme Court. And that's where you first get the language uh, in relationship to reproduction about the right of privacy to decide for yourself whether to continue uh, or terminate. Um, And so we had this precedent through the Griswold case, but the truth was it was a time when so many women in different ways were trying to what I call push back the barriers. You know, that was a time when women were told they couldn't get that they could not get access to credit unless their husband or their father signed for them. Well, women were getting more and more upset about that because in many cases they were the primary breadwinners for families or for different situations. And so Kay Bailey Hutchison, who was also elected to the legislature the same year I was, 72, taking office in 73, so uh, Kay and I were the two co-sponsors of a bill that women should have credit without having to get the consent of their husband or their father if they had the financial ability to pay whatever 
time when women played half-court basketball. I certainly did in high school, and a lot of other women in my age did as well. Uh, only we were just allowed to run half-court. If you went below the center line, or if you went over the center line, it was called traveling, a technical violation. So we would start at one end of the court, dribble, take two dribbles, and then we had to throw the ball to somebody else on our same team. And then they took two dribbles, and they had to throw it to somebody else on the team. And you could dribble up until you got to that center line. And then you had to throw it across the line to somebody on your team for them to keep trying to go down to make a basket. Well, that seemed really ridiculous. Women <laughs> were capable of running the full court. Wasn't, wasn't the reason, so, let me interject here, wasn't the reason that whoever made that rule up thought that it would damage our reproductive <laughs> organs to run yeah, the whole I, length of the court? I, I talked to uh, the coach that I had and complained about not being able to run the full court and all that. And she said, oh, you know, this is to save young women's future uh, reproductive ability because after all, that is part of the reason someone will marry them. Uh, wow. And help, of course, help I us. Not that I wish today. I wish you could see the expressions around this table. <laughs> Shock, horror, and disbelief. I'm gonna sum it up on my part. <laughs> I I had no idea that this is one, Claire. Sorry, this is yeah, the, it's Claire the again. Claire the Buddhist. Claire the Buddhist. Um I had no idea that basically one generation ago, women were in so many ways legally second-class citizens. Um, I, I mean, it just brings the question to my mind. Now that I realize we gained all this so recently, what do you see right now as the challenges? Or, you know, I mean, what, what call to arms would you say we should be listening to to make sure that all these rights don't get rolled back? Well, that's, I guess, you know, when I... Let me go back to the prior question for just a minute. So what you had was a group of women who were becoming more highly educated, who were involved in all kinds of things. I mean, as I was growing up, my father was a Methodist preacher, so we moved every four years. I had to make new friends every four years, but I still wanted to be a leader. So I became the president of the Future Homemakers of America. <laughs> uh, because that was one thing women could be president of. I bet they're um, really I bet they're really, really proud. I bet they're really, really proud of your accomplishments. <laughs> <laughs> well, they they don't ask me to cook. So. <laughs> um, and then I was a drum major for the Canyon Junior High Band and then I was um, you know, an officer in a lot of school organizations and later uh, wanted to be either president or vice president of the Matt Murray College, a Methodist institution in Abilene, Texas, uh, to be president or vice president of the student body. And I'm talking faster because I'm trying to get through this part so we can go on to other questions. Um, and the campus dean of students told me that I could not be the president or vice president because that was always men who held those positions. So I was very upset about it and talked to my roommate, uh, Susie Benham, and she said, okay, Sarah, there's always a way around things like this. Why don't we run my boyfriend for president? Let's run your boyfriend for vice president. We'll run you for secretary, and they don't 
care as much about student affairs as we do, so they'll let us run it. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. <laughs> um, and then later I thought I was going to, I was doing my practice teaching, and it, it just wasn't working out real well for me to teach the eighth graders how to love Beowulf. Uh, and so That's I thought, hard. I've got to do something else. And one of the people in our church in Vernon, Texas, was a lawyer. And so Mother took me to see him, and he talked to me about being a lawyer and suggested I ought to try it, because there were a lot of different ways to practice law. So I went back to the same uh, dean of students and told him I wanted to go to law school. And he said, of course, oh, you cannot do that. No woman from this college has ever gone to law school. So that was the moment I decided I was going to love <laughs> And there were five women in my entering class in the summer of 1964. Out of how many? It was a generation. How many were in there, the, in the oh, had, sorry, how many were in the class total? Oh, 125 mm. that summer. Wow. Yeah. And uh, now sorry. women are the majority of students yeah. at the University yeah. of Texas Law School. Uh, but it was a time when there were a lot of different women, and I bet if you all begin to talk to other women of about my age, you'll find there are a lot of them that somebody said to them, you cannot, women cannot, no, and that, that's what made their determination that they were going to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a generation determined to try to push back barriers. Now, I think there's still a generation that is determined to protect the uh, victories of the past, but they're also trying to figure out how to continue to expand the rights for women. So, for example, there's a lot of talk now about family leave or about paid family leave mm -hmm. or about um, more time off in, in, uh, in the situation of pregnancy. So I think uh, younger women are looking at, well, sports, you know, women being involved in a lot of sports, far beyond just half-court and full-court basketball. Um, and there are a lot in business, you know, there's still a major problem that there are so few women who are leaders in business. Not that they aren't willing to be, but they don't get picked. Or if you look at the names of the people currently being rumored to become a part of the incoming president's cabinet or top officials, there are not many women in that group. Well, his daughter. <laughs> I, I prefer to think of that as that there, there are many fewer women who are willing to uh, participate <laughs> in that administration. But maybe that's wishful thinking. <laughs> Well, I actually hadn't looked at it that way, and I think you may be right. <laughs> well, one, one thing occurs to me, Sarah, you taught uh, a class in leadership at University right. of Texas, and it seems to me that women lead in a very different way from the way men lead. Um, you want to expand on that, Well, I think we, we, meaning women, and this is... A, a real generalization, which is always tricky. But it seems to me that we um, tend to be much more able to collaborate and cooperate 
with various groups. I'm thinking of Road Women, the club that you know that I'm active in here. One way that we were able to participate in what happened in the November election in Harris County is that we built a very strong collaborative network of all kinds of organizations that had never worked together before. And some of them had worked together and they didn't like each other, but we told them they had to work together for the good of the outcome. And Harris County stands out uh, in the country. Rachel Maddow even talked about it. I mean, she was astonished at what we had done here. And I think that sprang from um, an impulse to bring everybody in and not have a top-down, hierarchical, dictatorial type of scheme that I have experienced much of my professional life in law firms that are male-dominated, for example. So, anyway, I don't know if that's the kind of leadership uh, shift that we can look forward to as women become more um, important in how businesses run. I think it will be at least in some cases, and I think in others women have felt they had to, you know, there was a period where everybody wore a suit, not a tie necessarily, but otherwise you more or less dressed like men did. Uh, because you thought that's what you had to do to be accepted. Right. Um, so I think there's still, to some extent, uh, women in good leadership positions who are taking on the attitudes and the, quote, coloring of the way men do things in order to move up through the ranks. Uh, and I think slowly that's becoming less expected, less necessary. But it does take a lot of determination. Um, Sherry Sandberg and others in, I guess, the high-tech industry is the one where I am most aware of women reaching the very top ranks. Um, so I think when you ask the question of what is left to do, I mean, here in Texas, we've got the problem of um, the governor having uh, determined that he doesn't want uh, Medicaid here in Texas providing services through Planned Parenthood. And Planned Parenthood is the major source of medical care for a lot of women. Uh, contraception, abortion, um, well baby care, well woman care, uh, you know, uh, breast exams, uh, all kinds of medical care. Cancer, not just cancer screenings, and for men exactly. too. Yeah. Men go to Planned Parenthood. Absolutely. Um, Although I don't know if, if what the governor has said is that uh, Planned Parenthood couldn't provide health care for men. I haven't seen that referred to in any of the press clippings. I, I just have a question, Sarah. This is Claire again. Um, okay. I'm really surprised that, that sort of the groundbreaking work on contraception and abortion came from Texas. Yes, and I think it's because the sexism was stronger here than almost any place else. Really? That's so interesting. Well, now, Griswold came out of Connecticut. 
that case about okay, married yes. people. Yes, yeah. that's true. And Planned Parenthood in Connecticut, by the way, was founded, I think this is true, Sarah, by George H.W. Bush's mother. Wow. I don't know if she was very involved. I don't know. Well, H.W. used to be called Rubbers when he was in... Sorry, I'm talking, not talking in the microphone. Didn't he used to be called Rubbers when he was in the Senate or something? Because, yeah, I thought I... He 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 was he was a uh, pro contraception, you know, before he was against it, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> could could you just? Oh, sorry. I, I was just going to ask you to unpack what you what you meant about the sexism being stronger here, but uh, I'll whenever that fits in. Are you are you there? I am. I'm I'm trying to. Uh, my mind's going in forty two different oh. directions. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I guess I was going to add. Maybe can I if I can add to Claire's. I was thinking like I wonder if that's also something that we can think about going forward. Like whether Texas should be or can be or will be some kind again some kind of center for this kind of activism because of the sort of regressive uh, policies of the administration and of the state? Well, I do think that uh, women younger than I, and women rights too, to some extent, are going to be more enraged by being told all of a sudden, well, you can't get health care at Planned Parenthood, you can't do this, you can't do that. And, um, you know, Texas is... The legislature has been passing a lot of very restrictive laws. Now, when I say that, what I'm really referring to is that there are two big issues. One is, will abortion be legal? And second, will it be available? And so Will versus Wade said, yes, abortion is going to be legal, and you can't make it otherwise. So what the opposition started to do is try to think up as many ways as they could to make abortion unavailable. And so they have passed laws saying that women uh, must have very long waiting periods between initially seeing a doctor and going back for any procedure and um, uh, lots of things that make abortion more expensive. Uh, they have recently uh, talked about, um, well, passed a law that says any fetal tissue, whatever its um, origination, uh, must be buried in, a, in the rites of a funeral. Well, that's going to cost a lot extra for women who don't have much money anyway. And so, again, it's the question of access. Or you may remember that Trump one time said that um, uh, he was okay with the laws on abortion, and uh, he was asked by the reporter he was talking to, well, what about, you know, the fact that women will have to, you know, could get an abortion if they were just in a different state? And he said, well, they just have to move across state lines. And I'm inclined to think about the fact that, well, he's got a helicopter, he's got a plane, mm -hmm. he's got lots of money, so it's easy for him. But what about women that don't have both things? And he seems to blank when it comes to the fact that that makes abortion unavailable if you've got to go to a different state. So here in Texas, we are now, because of some of the Texas laws passed in the last four years, having to raise money to make it available to, through a group called Jane's Due Process, which is um, trying 
trying to look at the fact that uh, women who are under 18 uh, have to have either their parents' consent or the consent of a judge based on a finding that they are mature enough to make their own decision uh, in order to have, for example, an abortion. And so that means the woman has to find uh, a lawyer. We're trying to provide training to young lawyers, or lawyers willing to help, but a lot of them are younger lawyers, um, to work with young women to have a hearing. It used to be you could go before any uh, elected judge, uh, district judge, but now the legislature has said no. It has to be a judge elected in the county where the young woman resides. Well, that makes it a lot harder because judges are elected in Texas, and so people could be afraid to to uh, consent to an abortion based on the young a finding the young woman is mature enough to make her own decisions because they're going to have to go before the public again in the next election cycle, and will they get reelected? There has been so much change because when I was in the legislature back in the 70s, uh, there were a lot of Republicans for choice. Mm. Uh, so there were a lot of members of the Texas legislature who were Republican, but they were very willing to help me on legislation to make reproductive decisions a matter for the individual to decide, not the government. Sarah, um, um this is this is Amy, the one without a religious tradition. Um, Amy, the nun, but the not in UN. Yeah, not the Roman Catholic kind. Got it. Um, that seems really important. When and why did that change? When did reproductive rights become this partisan issue that divides us so clearly? I would say it was more in the late '80s and into the '90s. Uh, there was an article in the New Yorker within the last, say, three months that particularly focused, as an example, on the Southern Baptist Church. Now, when I was working on Roe versus Wade, Boy Valentine was the director of the Southern Baptist, um, I've forgotten what his title was, but essentially on public issues. He was their person who uh, tried to help... Uh, enunciate what their position was and help get that information out. And he was very helpful on the case Roe versus Wade. And then as time went by, the leaders in the Southern Baptist Church who were working with Floyd Valentine to say it ought to be the woman's decision gradually were no longer in the official positions and the ones who were saying no, uh, those are opportunities, those decisions should not be available to women took over. And so I think Floyd Valentine lost his position a few years ago. So the whole article was talking about the transition and who was involved in it within Southern Baptist Church. Now, the Pope, of course, has recently, and y'all help me because um, I, I believe, I want to state this correctly had said that women could go to their priest and admit they had used contraception and been forgiven, and be forgiven. Now, anybody know a different way to state it more accurately? I, I think that's right. I mean, 
We're missing a Catholic. Yeah, we are. <laughs> we're down a Catholic. <laughs> but uh, my ex-husband became a Catholic, and but he was not able to be a full Catholic uh, until right before he died. He wasn't sure that he was going to get to be buried in the Catholic Church. The reason he became a Catholic, I think I've told you, is because of Gene Robinson, the gay bishop of New Hampshire. And he got uh, very turned off to the Episcopal Church because of the uh, uh, tolerance of gay people and the welcoming of LGBT people into the priesthood and then into the ranks of bishops. And so he reacted against that, but he had to get a bunch of annulments, including the annulment of our marriage with two children, which to me is sort of interesting that we've, in the eyes of, he, and the Catholic Church said, no, they're not bastards, but I don't know how that happens. But anyway, the Pope said something in Washington, D.C. when he was here that allowed local priests to give uh, forgiveness of all kinds of things, including what you're talking about, use of contraceptives and uh, the fact that they hadn't gotten all their annulments in line and all of that. So my ex-husband was buried in the Catholic Church because of what his priest was able to do. So I think you're right. That's a long roundabout response to that. But I think it's the current uh, Pope. It's the current made, one, yes. Yeah. Who made a statement just recently. So there's change within the Catholic Church. Maybe yeah. not uh, a change that would have the significance of lightning, but, you know, that's slowly, gradually... <laughs> uh, moving a little more. Well, a lot of people don't like this Pope. A lot of Catholics don't like him because he's huh. too open-minded and uh, forgiving. <laughs> Good Lord, no, we need more judgment. Hellfire <laughs> and damnation. <laughs> anyway. But the, uh, oh, sorry. I was go just going to say what you're saying is kind of interesting because what you're indicating is in a way... Um, that certain religious forces that in the past have we've seen as impeding progress or being regressive or reactionary now seem to be progressive or maybe the potential sources for um, a kind of progressive politics in an age where the political climate has actually regressed and now the kinds of rights like the reproductive rights that you fought for are, have been chipped away in a lot of places. I mean, there are a lot of places that if Roe versus Wade were overturned tomorrow, abortion would immediately become illegal. Um, and there are many more places where it's just, like you said, not accessible anymore, except to wealthy people, right? Yeah, um, and it's interesting because looking back, there have been various periods uh, where groups of nuns in UNS uh, <laughs> were very active on social issues. Yeah. Much more so than the traditional church. And sometimes the traditional church just ignored them, and sometimes it came down on them, depending on who and what was going on in the hierarchy. 
But I know we're reaching a point where I'll need to excuse myself, but right. I do want to uh, go back to a couple of things. One is, I think there was a sense, um, as I was coming out of law school, that a lot of times there weren't opportunities for women to do things of significance in traditional ways. And so we kind of went ahead and said, well, okay, we'll do them in non-traditional ways. And there were a lot of women who's, um, are, who were climbing the mountain of influence back in those days who had to use non-traditional ways to move higher. And I think women have had a feeling in recent years that, you know, this thing about do, you can do anything you want to, you just have to work at it. And I think a lot of them are seeing that that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there, there are some things that I think will make them realize that mm, they've got to do a lot of things on their own. Uh, and that makes me hopeful. Um, I think when this younger generation begins to see that, you know, there is a real danger of abortion not being... Now, oh, I want to make a key point that I haven't made. And that is that there's not going to be something like lightning. Um, and when I say that, what I mean is that first, um, of course, Trump, for example, has to be... Um, inaugurated. Then you get the question of who is he going to appoint to the vacancy, current vacancy, on the U.S. Supreme Court. But probably one new person on the Supreme Court isn't enough to dramatically change the court's opinion on things. So then you've got one of the judges who's basically in favor of Roe and reproductive rights for women, uh, one who's 79, one who's 80, one who's 83. So the question is, how long can they last? So I know a lot of my friends are there is a guy putting... a long rest- time. <laughs> I heard somebody I'm, I'm sorry, I said, if there is a God, a long time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So a lot of people are praying for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, yeah. for example, mm-hmm. to just last. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so that process is one. Then you have the beginning of cases around the country and how long will it take them mm-hmm. to get to the U.S. Supreme Court or uh, who has won prior uh, elections to decide who's going to be in state legislatures. Um, the Texas situation is one where all statewide elected officials are Republican, but not just Republican. Republicans who are basically opposed to women making their own decisions. And so, you know, it, there's just a lot of, um, what, various steps that are going to have to happen before we'll know long term what's going to happen. But in the meantime, there are a lot of different ways for people to have influence and. Well, you have been wonderful to take this amount of time with us. This is far beyond 15 minutes or even 30 (laughs) minutes. And we thank you so much, Sarah. And 
Uh, uh, Especially, the only reason I'm laughing is, did you really think it would just be 50? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know anything about podcasts, and so I was just going on what I was told. So, anyway, well, thank you so much. Thank yeah, thank, thank you. to the younger women who are participating today, because you're really the key, the front line, as I call it, in yep. what will happen in the future. It was, it was an honor talking to you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Thank you. For more information about Faith and Reason 360 podcast, visit our website at faithandreason.org.